Yeah, God, we ask that you'd continue to speak to us. Lord, help me to speak to your people, the people that you love, God. It's such a privilege and honor to be uh, in this church with these people. And I ask God that today you'd really encourage us, strengthen us, and speak to us about a vital aspect of who you are. Uh, Amen. Amen. So I'm on our second week of a teaching series that we've just begun, uh, looking at the book of, book of Isaiah, which is in the middle of your Bibles. It's an Old Testament book written by a prophet. And uh, Isaiah was a prophet, so a lot of his book uh, sounds very gloomy, because prophets were concerned with the terrible present and the glorious hope. The terrible present and the glorious hope. Last week we looked at the terrible present and the glorious hope and saw that God, as revealed by Isaiah, God is the God who makes clean and cleanses us from all our sin. So we're continuing that today. Isaiah is a man who's confident in the future, not because of the brilliance of man or the ingenuity of man to vote for the right party in the European elections or anything like that, but because he knows that God is a God who doesn't quit and God is a God who has all power and all authority over everything and that God is a good God. Isaiah is writing to um, this part of the world, the King's Church for everyone part of the world. There it is. Keep going. There we go. He's writing to this part of the world, which is uh, the Middle East, Israel. That's where most of the Bible takes place if you're new to the Bible. This week we're going to be looking at that to see how God is the God who makes clean. That's the big idea of this morning. Um, sorry, that was last week. God is the God of peace. Where are we? That was last week with this week. Welcome. Nice to see you all. Welcome to church. Um, several times in the Bible, God describes himself as the God of peace. And so that's what we're going to be looking at, how Isaiah re- reveals that to us. Now, I googled peace and ways to find peace and found some fun things for us to look at today. And I don't turn my nose up at some of these but some because they're very helpful, but some of them are very amusing. How to find inner peace and, and mental peace. Um, so I found lots of nine ways to this, ten ways to that, six things to do, diets to eat, that kind of thing. But here we have one with pictures. This is a picture of an armchair. Number, and there's like ten steps on how to achieve inner peace. Um, Find a quiet, special place, either inside or outside. Um, Remove all other distractions. Sit in a relaxed position. Put your hands on your lap or in a comfortable position. That's very important. Um, Close your eyes. Focus carefully on your breathing. And this is my favorite one. Think about a river. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) My sense of humor. Think about a river, achieving a stillness. Number eight, let your mind, body relax. Number nine, notice how much easier it is to concentrate when you're done. And number 10, Practice this often. And you notice she's changed her clothes and she's in a different chair. So you can practice this wherever you like. Um, there we go. There's some tips on how to achieve inner mental peace. Uh, but I also came across one website called The Tiny Buddha. And they had 40 steps, 40 things that you need to do to achieve inner peace. Some of them are very useful. Uh, but some of them are quite amusing. Uh, first one was take 100 deep breaths. That sounds like a lot to me. But take 100 deep breaths. Uh, breaths. Yes. Thank you. Um, next one, volunteer at an animal shelter. Maybe. That's not really going to make me feel peaceful. Um, This one's quite funny. Get up and dance to your favorite song, focusing only on the music and the movement. (laughs) I wondered if we could play some music now and kind of close our eyes and just focus on the music and the movement. I don't know if you've ever done that, by the way. Play some music, close your eyes, and just do... It's very amusing and um, strangely calming. Um, Next one, be your own best friend. Um, go on dates with yourself and just talk to yourself. It's how to achieve inner peace. And this is my personal favorite. Practice alternate nostril breathing. <laughs> oh, it works. I feel so peaceful. So if at any point during this morning's message you're feeling a little bit lacking in peace, just... It kind of really helps calm the nerves, settle you, keep you attentive, those kind of things, which is all very helpful until you have a cold. And it's like, 
<laughs> you just have to do that thing where you, anyway, we won't go down there. And those things are helpful. They're perhaps useful ways for achieving peace of mind, um, for achieving a, a rest in your soul. Um, but a lot of the tips out there on how to achieve peace basically require you to try to escape from reality. Shut your eyes to reality, breathe strangely, and distance yourself from what's real as much as possible. Then you'll get peaceful. Probably because you know, we all know that life is difficult and there's lots in the world to help to ensure that you lose your peace. Um, and yet I've met Christians, uh, and I know several Christians who have died, but have held on to a peace and a joy even to the bitter end. Not because they escaped from reality, but because they faced up to it. They had a, they had a, a peace that wasn't just a resting in the mind, but it was a peace that remained with them throughout everything. Uh, and traditional pictures of peace don't always help us. This is a nice lamb and um, a serene picture and the Lord is my shepherd. Uh, or this is a picture of peace, a dove, it's very tranquil. Or maybe it's just for you, this is peace. Peace at last when the children are in bed, that's peace. They don't always help us necessarily. Um, a competition um, was held. This is a story that I've often heard. A competition was held several years ago where they asked people to draw and paint pictures of peace and submit them to this competition. And so people came up with the traditional pictures of peace, pictures of a waterfall and a rolling hills with sheep and lambs and all kinds of lovely things like that. But none of those pictures won. The picture that won the competition was a picture of a dark, gloomy sky, a waterfall that was just looked violent and um, gloomy and grey. And in the midst of that, there's this beautiful, colourful bird on a rock singing its lungs out. That's peace. That even in the midst of a storm, even when everything's chaotic, you still have an ability to sing. You still have a joy that doesn't leave you. So that's what we're looking at today. And you might think, oh, why do I need to hear about peace? You know, we're not at war uh, necessarily. Life isn't that difficult for me. Well, our world is, is a world that desperately needs peace, actually. Um, horizontally, peace with one another. We need that. There's violence and wars all across the world and strife in homes and feuds in communities that we need peace. We need to learn how to get along with one another. Uh, and also, and perhaps more relevant for most of us, is all of us are after an internal peace, a kind of a contentment, uh, a, a being comfortable in our own skinness that says, I'm, I'm peaceful, I'm okay, I'm at one with life, I'm not constantly um, kind of spinning in my head. And what we've seen is that the peace the world offers is largely an escapism. Um, but given that you have so little control about the events of your life, we need a peace that's a, that enables us to endure. We need a stronger peace than armchair meditation. That might be useful, but it doesn't help you when you have to process a bad medical report. Or it doesn't help you when you get told you're fired. Or it doesn't help you, I don't know, when the kids go crazy. Life's difficult. So that's what Isaiah writes into. That's what we're looking at today. That's why we need to hear what the Bible has to say this morning about the God of peace. So we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 9. Familiar verses to many of us, um, often read at Christmas. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 7. Just should say, should say chapter, eight, uh, chapter 8 ends with this utterly bleak picture of destruction and desolation and darkness and gloom. And it's then, with that as its backdrop, that Isaiah carries on in chapter 9. And he says this, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Uh, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The opposites that frame this reading that I've just seen are really interesting. You have distress and anguish, joy and rejoicing, thick darkness, dawning light, staff of oppression on their shoulders, and the government of ruling on the shoulders of the child to come. And the picture of peace in these verses is not like the traditional pictures of peace. I don't know if you spotted it in, in the early verses. Uh, the picture of peace is to do with multiplication of joy, rejoicing, celebration, glad, enthusiastic, gleeful plundering of stuff. That's peace as pictured here. It's a celebration. And so what we see is peace is, is less like a dove and more like a dance. It's less like a symbol and more like a celebration. In Bible terms, that's what peace is. There's a wholeness to it, a celebration, a happiness, and a delight. And what we see in those verses that I've read, that that peace uh, comes about and is described uh, because of the three occurrences of this word for. Um, in verse 4, um, it talks about for their burdens will be broken. The, the rod of their oppressors will be taken off them. Past tense. The stuff in their history will be wiped clean. And then it talks about future tense. For the bloodied boots and the clothes, the garments that have been rolled in blood as a result of war, they'll be burned. They will be burned for fuel for the fire. Future tense. Saying past tense, this peace will happen because past tense, all of their hurt and anguish will have been taken away. Future tense, it will be, be achieved because one day all of their memories of those hurts are going to be destroyed. Every tear is going to be wiped away. And then it talks about present tense, how that's achieved as it describes the child, the son that is given. Yeah, in monarchies, and this was written to a, a, a monarchy, a monogarchic, whatever society, um, sons were always good news, particularly if you're a king. That's what drove Henry VIII so crazy because he couldn't get a son and that's why we breathed a sigh of relief because he couldn't get a son. And fortunately, England was able to, to get on with its life without a tyrannical ruler. Anyway, um, sons are good news. And, and the son, the child that is to come is fantastic news. This is, the, this is the first and probably the clearest hint in the Old Testament that the child who was to be born was going to be God, mighty God, everlasting father, a child and a son that was all of those things. And it's a peace then that's achieved past and future as a result of the present coming of this son, this child. It's a peace that is long-lasting. It covers our history and it covers our future. In my experience, that kind of peace is hard to come by. In my experience, contentment is a slippery fish to keep hold of. A few weeks ago, my boys discovered that if you squeeze soap in the bath, it flies out and you have to find it again and squeeze it. And, go, and they were doing this for just hours, it felt like. Just squeezing the soap and it was squeezing the soap and it would fly out the hand. Contentment, satisfaction, lasting peace. So often, in my experience, feels like that. 
I tell myself, when I buy this, then I'll be happy. Not happy, but then I won't need any more. Then I'll have enough stuff. And I buy it, and then I want something else a few months later. Or when I fix this, when I get that, then of course I'll feel content. Or when I achieve, is probably more accurate, isn't it? When I achieve, when I get that promotion, when I earn this kind of salary, I'll feel secure, I'll feel stable. When my children do what they're supposed to do, then we, we always say, next, contentment is next. Contentment is just around the next corner. When I get married, I used to tell myself, when I get married, then I'll be completely content and peace. And that is the one thing that I've found has not disappointed. There's never been any strife in the home. And that's really good news. Just thought I'd clarify before I move on. And we do that with careers. We do that with with possessions and houses. Um, Randy Alcorn, a Christian writer, said that whenever people tell me they found their dream home, he says, I always think, how sad that your dream's small enough to fit inside a home. (laughs) And he thinks, I know that that isn't going to satisfy, that it's not going to be content, I'm not going to be content with that. And I know it's not just me, it's us. Um, Lily Allen, a very successful um, singer and musician, she tweeted this week uh, expressing her own discontent. She said, I'd give everything I own if someone else could take my place. Will someone else please take my place? To which all the Christians on the Twitter sphere replied, Jesus will. <laughs> he got very excited. Uh, And Madonna, several years ago, in an interview in Vogue magazine, she said this, uh, My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre that is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. That's a, a very honest reflection from Madonna that, actually, if we're honest, all of us can relate to to some degree. I, I, I feel like, at times, it, I'm never more than a few months away from an emotional breakdown, if I'm honest. Or I don't discover contentment or peace of mind like I'd like to because I, I look in all the wrong places at times. And uh, every week when I have a day off, I, get in, I have the tendency to get incredibly frustrated and down because... I've got nothing to produce. I've got nothing to do. Like, I look to things to give me peace, and they don't because I'm resting now, and I don't know what to do with that. So we're on holiday next week. You can pray for Amy because I'm a nightmare to holiday with. Um, but we can all feel like that, I think, from one, in one sense or another. And if we're honest, life often feels like one long exercise in anxiety management. I'll just get through one bout, and then I'll fix it, and, and then something else crops up. Well, Alexis de Tocqueville, who was a French sociologist, um, visited in the early 19th century, I think, visited America and uh, came back and wrote about his observations of this affluent, uh, growing society that he saw. He said that in America, there is a strange melancholy that haunts its inhabitants in the midst of abundance. There's a strange sadness. Even though people are surrounded by so much, it haunts them, this sadness haunts them and they never get to escape it. It's a discontent with things. A, f- uh, a friend uh, tells a story of um, when his burglar alarm went off in the middle of the night and it woke up all the street. It was this alarm that's like a wah, 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 really loud. Wah, wah, wah. And he got out of the house. He was in the middle of the night but he got dressed. He got a ladder. There was his alarm and climbed up the ladder to get there and it's still just going wah, wah really loud and everyone on the street's being woken up the neighbours are coming around and complaining him and he's up the ladder pressing things trying to work out what to do it and he's just going wah 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 she's going on and on and on this relentless alarm and eventually I think he said he hit it with a hammer and it stopped and it's wah just stopped 
And suddenly peace descended. And he said at that moment, he just broke into tears. He was like, the relief, the relief of finally achieving this peace. Now, we can see that with an alarm, but many of us are longing and can relate to how we want that in life. I just want peace that lasts. De Tocqueville goes on to say that the trouble is the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And when we look to things to satisfy us and give us peace, whether it's an armchair and no distractions and alternate nostril breathing, whether it's that or whether it's something else, it's only ever going to disappoint us. We get darkened in our thinking about things. The good news from what we read in Isaiah is that he said, on those who dwelt in deep darkness, a light has shone. In verse, uh, verse 1, he says this, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. He has made glorious the way of the sea, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations. The first time that Galilee is mentioned as a place. And we know that Jesus then ministered a lot in Galilee during his um, ministry on earth. But Galilee was, a, was, was the place in Israel that often would fall first to the um, conquering armies. The Assyrians had conquered it um, prior to Isaiah writing this. It was a place that was often inhabited by people who weren't Jewish. So it was called Galilee of the Nations because it was the place that all the different nations dwelt. There was lots of different people there, lots of different influences, which was good in terms of God's long-term game of seeing salvation come to the whole earth. It was good. But it was bad because all of these nations came in with all of their different gods, all of the different solutions that they offered to Israel's problem, and the people living in Galilee chased after all these other gods. They became idol worshippers. And much of the story of the Old Testament, in order to understand it, we need to understand how God feels about idolatry and why idolatry is so bad. Because that so often is why he is just why God is is angry at his people is because of their persistent idol worship, the persistently going after other gods to give them things that God has said He will give. And that's why in the New Testament, um, Nathaniel, who was sitting under a tree, someone told him, "We found the Messiah. He's come from Nazareth." And Nathaniel said the famous words, "Can anything good come out of Eastbourne? I mean uh, Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" That's what he said. Because it had this position in Jewish psyche of being this place of compromise, this place of false worship. And why do I mention this? Why do I play that? Why do I show that verse and discuss Galilee of the Nations? It's because we, in so many ways, are Galilee of the Nations. We are those who turn to all kinds of other things, other gods, to satisfy us and bring us lasting peace. Our discontent so often leads to and results from idolatry. And you might say, idolatry? I'm not an idol worshipper. I don't worship false gods and worship any gods, you might say. That's true. You don't, you don't make a statue and bow down to it. You don't point your sofas at a particular part of your room and stare at it all day. We don't do that. We don't bow down to false gods. But what we do do is we, we take things, people, places that aren't God and we put them in the position of ultimate prominence in our lives. We turn good things into ultimate things, can't live without things, or things that we look to to satisfy us in every way things. You see, if God is the fresh spring of all peace and of all life, then looking to things other than God to do those things that he said he will do is like drinking from an animal trough. God's the fresh spring, we drink from the animal troughs. And all of us have idols in our lives, things that we look to other than God. How do I know that? Because the human heart 
is deceitful above all else, the Bible says, or, you, or as one writer has said, the human heart is a factory for producing idols. We, because we're born disconnected from God in this world, we look to everything and anything other than God to satisfy us. We'll try to achieve peace in all other means other than God. And some of our idols are deep. We have deep idols and surface idols. Our deep idols are often hard to spot, but they're things like approval, security, control, wealth, comfort, power. And because we're living for those things, we manipulate what are called surface idols in order to get them. So surface idols are things like money, sex, relationships, food, careers, children, family. We use those things to give us and help us to get our deeper idols of approval. So I, I tell a white lie because really I, I want approval. Or I, I'm a, I might be a serial relationship hopper because I just, I'm addicted to the drug of acceptance. I need to feel that and I'll go anywhere I can to get it. Or I might be quite stingy with my finances because my God is control. I want to feel in control of things. God says give away. I say no. I need control to feel secure. That's how it works. And um, thinking about this, uh, I was thinking about this recently when I was reading to my children The Tiger Who Came to Tea, a book all about idolatry. You remember, uh, who, who here knows of this book or read this book when you were children? Okay. I was hoping for more. <laughs> we'll see. So The Tiger Who Came to Tea uh, is a popular book that was written in the 50s. And so I thought I'd just do a little exposition of The Tiger Who Came to Tea. It's a story about a girl called Sophie who um, sits down for afternoon tea with her mother. And there's a knock at the door. And so they think, I wonder who that could be. It can't be the grocer. It can't be all these other people for all these legitimate reasons. And so they open the door to find out who this person is. This picture behind us. It says, Sophie opened the door. And there was a big, furry, stripy tiger, of course. And the tiger said, excuse me, but I'm very hungry. Do you think I could have tea with you? And Sophie's mother said what every responsible adult would say. Of course, come in. The tiger comes into their house, eats their food, drinks their drink, drains their taps of all of the water, and then says, thank you very much, and leaves. And they have nothing left in the house. And so tragedy of tragedies, they have to go out to the restaurant to eat at the end of the story. The tiger who came to tea. And the reason I mention that is because the tiger arrives on the scene. He's very powerful. He's a tiger, but he's very polite. And so they let him in and he eats them out of house and home. And that's exactly how idolatry and sin operates in our lives. Idol worship doesn't appear on the scene and go, if you worship me, I will leave you ravenous and hungry and desperate and hopeless and lonely. It doesn't. It appears on the scene and says, if you look to me, I will give you everything you need. Excuse me, it says. Can I come in? I'm very hungry. And we think, oh, of course. I mean, you're very powerful, so I'm not going to say no. I mean, everyone tells me that relationships, or when I'm loved, then I'm fulfilled. When I'm in a relationship, then I'm a meaningful person. So, of course, you can come in. Or everyone tells me that when I climb the career ladder, it doesn't matter how I get there, but when I climb the career ladder and, and achieve, then I've made it. So, of course, come in, come in. And what we do is we invite idols into our lives and before long they have uh, eaten us out of house and home and left us feeling empty, hungry, hopeless at times. It's only one more piece of cake I tell myself at night. It's just another piece of comfort that I want to give myself. It's something else that they'll give me. Or they'll, they won't do what, again what they did to me last time, we tell ourselves. That's okay. Or it's only a little bit of debt 
it's okay, I need that, and then I'll get this, and I'll look like this, and people will think he's got it, he's got it together. Now, Augustine, one of the early church fathers, famous for writing, we are restless until we find our rest in God. And I'm a Christian, and I still remind myself of that every day. This isn't the kind of thing that when you become a Christian, tick, I'm now completely at rest, and I never have any lack, and I never stumble into idolatry again. No, it's uh, every day I need to remind myself I'm restless unless I look to God to fulfill me and to be the one that gives me all the rest that I need. And we need to realize this. We need to realize that our rest, our peace, our joy comes from God, but in Isaiah's passage, more specifically, comes from the son, the child that is given. The names and description of who this child is reveals that he's the one that we should look to. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This word wonderful is the closest the Hebrew um, language can get to the word supernatural. He's a supernatural counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government, there'll be no end. And on the throne of David uh, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What we see as we look through that list is that he rules He counsels, he reigns, he fathers forever, and his influence increases forever. He has no lack. And when we come under his rule, when we come under his counsel, when we allow him to be the one to satisfy us, we we adopt the position in life that we're supposed to. See, often discontent and lack of peace comes when we try to do what he was born to do. But when he does, we rest, we listen we obey, we're children forever, and our influence decreases so often, but his doesn't. In him we find our rest, we find our peace, we find contentment in life. And it is hard because, as I said, our hearts are idol factories that look all over the place for satisfaction. And idols come on the scene as these polite, powerful tigers that say, I'm just, I'm just being very reasonable, I'm hungry and I want to come in. I will satisfy you. Can I come in? We say, of course you can. So we need to build a church community then that creates opportunity and environments where we are regularly dragging one another away from the idols that we worship or pulling one another out of the animal troughs that we drink from and say, come to the stream of life. Come to the one who really satisfies. So married couples, We need to have conversations and be honest and aware of what our our individual struggles are and what our spouse's struggles are and say, how can we help one another? Amy knows that when I think in a certain pattern or when I chase after certain things, what's going on behind it is often that I'm looking for those things to do what only God can do. And we need to build marriages where we're honest and we're supporting one another, we're strengthening one another, we're praying with one another, we're challenging one another. As single people, we need to uh, be continually encouraging each other to hold the line, to trust God, to go for God's best, to not sell out, if you like. It requires a lot of faith, and it's a very difficult thing, particularly in our society, that tells you you can get instant gratification, instant satisfaction, instant peace. But we know that those instant forms of things are never as good as the fully-fledged, fully-roasted coffee that God offers. Instant coffee never lives up. And as single people, we need to encourage one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to lovingly challenge one another. 
as iron sharp, as one, one man sharpens the other, as iron sharpens iron. That's the proverb that was in my head then. Um, that's, that's what happens. As one man sharpens another, as one man, yeah, as you know the phrase, one man sharpens another, so I, anyway, that one, it's just gone. <laughs> we need to do that. In our small groups, in our life groups, we need to meet together, we need to lead each other, we need to study together, we need to pray together. All because God is the one who gives us all those things and we look to other places to satisfy us and do what only He can do. And you see, when we confess our sin and the times that we worship things and look to things other than God to satisfy us, vertical peace is restored. We suddenly find ourselves able to ah, actually receive from God and be at peace with God. And it's when you know that God loves you and isn't angry towards you, that he's forgiven you, then you discover an internal peace that comes from him. And then it's out of that internal peace that you think, I'm now able to give away horizontal peace, relational peace. I'm no longer an aggressive, argumentative type because I know I'm loved. I don't need wealth, power, acceptance, security to satisfy me because God provides those things. And that's how we strengthen. That's what happens in the, in the passage in Isaiah is that the historical context is that he's talking about a physical um, peace between nations. That when the child comes, he'll bring this peace to those nations. And that's what they were longing for, the horizontal peace that they were after. So God is the God who gives us a peace that, that allows us to rest. And yet his is also a peace that remains throughout the, the toughest and roughest storms of life. Many of you know that a lot more than I do. Just this morning talking to someone saying, kind of naturally, things are very chaotic. I've got a lot to be very anxious about. But I know in the midst of it a peace. I know a joy even in the midst of it. You see, before Christ, what happens so often is that we have peace and joy on the outside, but inwardly we're very anxious and beaten up because we're looking at other things to satisfy us. But in Christ, we now have the ability to to have peace and joy on the inside so that even though outwardly things might be very chaotic, very turbulent, and very, you know, giving us good cause for anxiety, we needn't feel it because now we have a peace and a joy inwardly. And as I said, many of you know this. And Jesus says this in John's Gospel, just hours or, or days before his arrest. He says to his, his followers, um, my peace I give to you. He says, I've, he says, take heart, my friends, take heart because I have overcome the world and now my peace I give to you. Jesus overcame by embracing and tackling head on and staring in the face some of the things and all of the things that this world says, this will trouble you, this will bring you discontent or heartache. But Jesus embraced death because he was trusting God. He embraced God's will for his life because he didn't, he didn't follow the, the idols and the patterns of his world. When the devil said to him, bow down to me and I'll give you all power over everything, Jesus said, no, I'm going to trust my father. I'm going to look to him. He lived his life trusting God, not looking to the idols. And as a result, could say to his followers, I've overcome the world. Now you can have my peace. And that's how we are able to find that kind of peace in the midst of troubles and trials. And John Wesley, who was a Christian who lived in England several centuries ago during a, a mass revival in this country where, where thousands and thousands of people were turning back to God, uh, often as a direct result of his preaching. And John Wesley came under quite a lot of fire um, and criticism in his day because people accused him of popularizing the Christian faith uh, and creating common converts. 
He was, he was seeing converts from the miners and the, the, the villagers and the commoners and not the kind of aristocracy or the hierarchy, the respectable types in society. So people criticized him for dumbing down the gospel or making it a commoner's message. And often John Wesley's reply would be to those kind of criticisms, watch my people die, watch my people die, and then you'll see if they're real converts. Because when you're facing the end and still have a peace that remains with you, still have a trust in God, even as you draw near to your final days and your final breath, then you'll know this faith was genuine. I'm trusting him for real. Then John Wesley could say these converts were real. Now I want to end this morning by us listening to a song that the band are going to play through, a song called It Is Well. And it's a powerful song not just because of the words in it, but because of the story behind it that many of you will know. It's a song that was written by a man called Horatio Spafford, who lived in the U.S., was born in New York in 1828, and spent a lot of his adult life in Chicago. Uh, He had five children, a wife, and lots of property. He was into real estate. And on one day, he experienced personal tragedy when his son died of scarlet fever as a young boy. As if that wasn't hard enough, a few weeks later, um, several of his properties that he owned and invested in burnt down as a result of a great fire in Chicago. He'd been stripped of everything. Sometime after that, he and his wife and their four daughters were due to go to Europe to spend time listening to and encouraging one of their friends, a man named D.L. Moody, who was an evangelist at the time. But Horatio Spafford, at the last minute, wasn't able to get on the, the ship that was to sail to Europe, and so he had to stay home and do some work, and so sent his wife and their four daughters on the ship. It was on this voyage that the ship encountered problems and was hit by an industrial tanker halfway across the Atlantic. Over 200 people died. Among them was his four daughters. His wife arrived in Europe uh, and just sent him one message via telegram, um, I alone am saved, or alone saved, that's what she said. And a couple of years after this tragedy hit him, he'd lost everything. His five children, his business, his wealth, he was a broken man. And yet, a couple of years after this, he took that voyage over to Europe again. And when he reached the point across the Atlantic, uh, he was th- the ship had collided with his children's ship, or his wife's ship, all those years ago, Uh, He was told, this is the place that it happened. And it was at that place and in that moment that he penned this song that we're going to listen to now, It Is Well. He said, it is well with my soul. And so we're going to listen to that now. And after that, spend some time worshipping God as the God who gives us peace. God is the God who gives us a peace that both both enables us to rest and it's a peace that remains with us throughout life and as we listen to this song you may want to use it as your opportunity to repent of some of the things that you know you look to other than God to satisfy you some idols that may exist in your life one writer says if you want to know what the idols are in your heart ask yourself where is the area of our monthly budget that I most often overspend on that I seem impossible to be able to control Often therein lies a source of idolatry. I can't control my money in this direction because I'm always saying, this will satisfy me, this will give me what I need, this will give me the peace and contentment that I long for. Let's listen to this song together and then I'll pray.